So, y'all ready to go? I don't know how y'all do it, honestly. How many talks have you heard? How much scripture's been open to you? Are you ready to go again? All right. I, I, I knew you were the special forces of youth groups, right? Um, how about that dinner tonight? Man. Anybody save me some cookies? I love those cookies. I just want, when I'm done, like I ate way too much before you speak. You should never eat as much as I just ate. Because you know all the blood? So I might say some crazy things tonight. I never know. Yes, yes. But I am looking forward to a big glass of milk and probably about six of those sugar cookies after we're done. If anybody would like to join me, you're more than welcome to. All right, um, I got to check one thing. <laughs> You want to join me, don't you, buddy? Yes, you do. I want some of those cookies. I'll take your cookies. Um, I don't know why. See, I told you it's happening. The blood is coming down. I just got to check something. Where's Joel? Joel, I know you're here. All right. He went somewhere. Well, this is even better. Uh, I just need to, I need to know if your shower is like mine. There is only like this one spot on the shower gauge that you've got to find, and it's the only place that you can put it where you can get warm water that doesn't either give you a third degree burn or freeze your fanny off. And I'm not kidding, I sit here and I go, ah! And I have to take two showers because I had to speak this morning and I played with you all the day and I had to take a shower and I'm literally going like, this and moving out of the way. <laughs> does, it, does that happen? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. All right, so he didn't just do that to me on purpose. All right, I just wanted to make sure because we're supposed to be friends. All right, y'all, if you have your Bibles, if you have your electronic devices, let's go to John 17. We're going to look at 6 through 11a. Anybody ever heard of Miroslav Volf? couple of y'all? Yes. Very good. Okay. He's a native Croatian, and he survived the war in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. All right. Well, he wrote this book. He's a professor today at Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School. And he wrote this book that just won every award you could possibly win. Uh, it's titled Exclusion and Embrace, A Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation. I mean, you've got you to gotta have a certain IQ just to read the title for crying out loud. Uh, but this book is the product of a stunning question that was asked him at the end of a lecture he gave. He actually took a Q&A, and a guy named Jurgen Moltmann, after he had given the lecture, he gave a lecture, and he was arguing that, that we have to forgive our enemies because God has forgiven us his enemy, right? And then after he had uh, given that argument, Moltmann says this, but Miroslav, can you embrace a setnik? Ah, a setnik. Do you know what a setnik is? Well, over in Croatia, they are a notorious, legendary fighter, Serbian fighter, who sowed desolation in Volf's Croatia, herded its people into concentration camps, raped its women, mothers, wives, sisters, daughters. Um... Burned down its churches, destroyed its cities. But Miroslav, can you forgive a setnik? Can you? 
Can you forgive your enemy? Uh, Wolf writes of a Muslim woman's personal account that he says is one of the most distressing stories from the war in Yugoslavia. I'm going to read it, and there might be, I don't know, I was like, ah, do I read all of it? Some of it's pretty, pretty graphic, um, but I want you to put yourself in her shoes, okay? I'm a Muslim, and I'm 35 years old. To my second son, who was just born, I gave him the name Jihad, so he would not forget the testament of his mother, which is revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. So be it. The Serbs taught me to hate. For the last two months, there was nothing in me. No pain, no bitterness, only hatred. I taught these children to love. I did. I'm a teacher of literature. I was born in Ilias, and I almost died there. My own student, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth. As the bearded hooligan standing around laughed, he told me, you are a good-for-nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. I do not know whether I first heard the cry or felt the blow, but my former colleague, a teacher of physics, was yelling mad, yelling like mad, Utasha, Utasha, and kept hitting me wherever he could. I have become insensitive to pain, but my soul? Oh, it hurts. I taught them to love, and all the while they were making preparations to destroy everything that is not of the Orthodox faith. Jihad, war. This is the only way. Can you embrace your enemy? Our text today deals with an enemy that we all have a complicated and confusing relationship with. I mean, quite honestly, if we were to have an honest conversation, what we are about to talk about tonight we honestly don't know what to do. It's an enemy we all have, and our relationship with this enemy is so convoluted and so complicated and so confusing that if we were to whiteboard right now what we are to relate to this enemy, we would see the answers that are up there would be just as convoluted and confusing to all of us. But our text, remember, Every text has an intent. Every text is going somewhere. And this text is going right to the heart of your deepest, most vile and bitter enemy. Please stand for the hearing of God's word as we read John 17, 6 through 11a. I know that's crazy, but that's where we're going to stop. If I can get to my bookmark. There we go. All right, we, just, we did 1 through 5 this morning, right? So you still got that in your heads and your hearts. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept my word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know them in truth. And I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
Oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask, we, we acknowledge the fact that your speaking and your acting are the same thing. And so, Lord, act. Just as we sang, act, move, work. Work in all of us. And we ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so what's the enemy we have a complicated and confusing relationship with in this text? Did you see it? What is it? The world. The world. I mean, find, look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Do you know this? I know this. Every day throughout our lives, we make millions of choices that are complicated and confusing about how to relate to the world. What is our relationship to the world? What's your relationship to the world? Is it escape or does it embrace? How would you right now, I mean, in your head, if you want to, you can say it out loud. It's not going to shock me. How would you characterize your relationship to the world? Would you characterize your relationship to the world as one of escape, survival? Or would you characterize it as one of embrace? How would you do that? Which relationship with the world is right? Embrace it or escape it? What's real Christianity? Embrace it or escape it? What is our relationship with the world? M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village. Any of y'all seen that? Some of you have, some of you haven't. All right, well, the main characters live in what appears to be sometime in the 1800s. I mean, the way the people are dressed... The way they talk with that old English, it appears to be somewhere on the frontier, in America somewhere. Uh, the way they do their food, they're not going to H-E-B. <laughs> you know, they don't, do y'all have H-E-B up here? Do you know? No, you don't. What do you have, Kroger? No, what do y'all have out here? Kroger? Okay, well, we have H-E-B. Coffee? I'm, de I'm destroyed. H, isn't it? How many of y'all from Texas, you know what I'm talking about, H-E-B? Okay, it's the greatest grocery store in the world. I actually go to the grocery store just to walk and look and see what's in it. Incredible grocery store. All right, well, early, early in this movie, you start getting the feeling that something creepy is going on. You know, like the dudes that are posted at night with torches around the village? That's kind of weird. And then everybody freaks out at the color red. And then there's these, some sort of monster thing that lives out in the woods and nobody says its name. In fact, they say those, those things we don't speak of. And then when someone actually crosses into the, into the woods, everyone freaks out because they think the contract between those they don't speak of and the village has been broken, right? Spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil spoil the movie for you okay but in the end you find out this movie everything is a complete hoax it's not the 1800s it's in the 2000s it was a hoax that the village elders actually put on the people in this village there are no monsters 
The elders made it up. And do you know why they made it up? Because they wanted to scare everyone to keep them in the village and not to go out beyond the village into the world that was out there. The color red symbolized blood. It symbolized evil. It symbolized sin. And that was the color to avoid. That was the color of the world. When we choose to escape the world only, guess what? We become the village. We circle the wagons. We try to survive and protect ourselves. But don't miss this. The color red, representing sin and blood and evil, it was not out there. It was in here all the time. And the village started seeing red because that's what was in the people. It wasn't just out there. They took themselves with them wherever they went. Now let's flip it around. If we choose to embrace the world only, we lose the world of another. Look at verse 11a. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. So Jesus is going to another world. Right? So if we embrace the world only, we, use, we lose that other world. And remember, that other world is eternal life. That other world is authorial life. That other world is source life. That other world is original life. That other world is ultimate reality. And so if we embrace the world only, we lose the world of the sent one, right? So here's the catch. The Bible doesn't give us that false choice. It doesn't give us a false choice between escaping the world or embracing the world. You know what it says? Do both. Embrace the world and escape it. All right, look at John 17. You got it, got it here for you? This is called the high priestly prayer. Verses 1 through 5, the structure is real easy. 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples. And then 20 through 27, he prays for us. Okay? You got the structure? Now I want you to find 11b through 19. This is what Jesus prays for. 6 through 11a is the grounds of the prayer. It's the power of the prayer. So I want you to look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. The world in the Bible is an anti-place. It's a false place. The world in the Bible is setting itself up to be a garden. The world is trying to take the place of the garden. It's an anti-garden. It's a garden replacement. The garden is paradise. The garden is life. The garden is ultimate meaning and security in your identity. And the world comes along and says, no, I'm your ultimate security and I'm your ultimate life. And meaning is going to be found here in me. It's an anti-garden, an anti-place. And it's filled with messed up people thinking that it's the true garden. Paul says it's the world is the flesh, the human nature, taking our sinful nature, and taking a bunch of us together 
all of us believing that the world is the garden and it's the flesh on steroids, he says. So the world is a place to escape. So go to 11b. This is why he prays what? God, keep and protect them while they're in the world. Then go down to verse 12. He prays, guard and not lose them to the world. This is why Jesus says in verse 14 that the world hates the church. Why does the world hate the church? Because the church is saying there's another garden. And the world says, no, this is the garden. This is the place of paradise. This is where you're going to find yourself. This is where you're going to find flourishing and fulfillment and fullness in your life. And the church is saying from the scriptures, no, this is the place. So there's this cosmic spiritual warfare, a paradise war, if you will, always going on. And that's why Jesus brings that out in verse 14. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is also praying for more than our survival in the world. Did you see that? Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just take you to heaven when you became a Christian? I have talked to so many students, whether it's in campus ministry or whether it's in high school, that so many students that are utterly ripped up about the meaning of life, and they're Christians. And they wish God would just take them out of the world. I mean, if that's our home, if that's paradise, if that's the garden, why do we have to wait and Jesus is actually praying that we're not taken out of the world. Now, you and I might not know all the reasons why God would have us stay here, but he gives us one. So you can bank on one reason of why he still has you here, one reason to build the meaning of your life around. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, it's not just survive, it's also sent. Our relationship with the world is one of survival, but it's one of being sent. Being sent is a mission word. Jesus is on a mission. He sends you on a mission. Jesus is sending you and me to actually participate and be a part of what God is doing in the world, not get in the way of what he's doing in the world. So Jesus actually comes up and saddles up beside us and he says, listen. I'm sending you on a mission. You've got a meaningful purpose in life. And we know that's ultimately knowing God. And then the reality of knowing God is that you have meaning and that he has sent you to participate and be a part of what he's doing in the world where he has you. So look at verse 21. What's the mission? so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you've sent me and love me, even as you have loved me. Don't miss the specific thing that the world is to know about God. What is it? His love for them. As you participate in what God is doing in the world, one of the things that ends up happening is that the world actually gets that God loves them. And get what kind of love it is. It's a one kind of love. It's a one way love. It's the same kind of love that he has for Jesus. Did you catch that in the text? That they may know that the way you love me is the way you love them. Jesus doesn't have one kind of love for Jesus and another kind of love for you. God has one kind of love for Jesus 
And it's the same kind of love he has for you and he has for the world. If you escape the world only and seek to survive the world only, you'll miss the mission of God's love for the world. You'll be a village. And you'll be miserable. I think the movie's wonderful because it shows how miserable it is to just live with yourself and carry with you the very thing you're trying to escape, the color red. Creating a Christian village is not being sent into the world. Here's what being sent into the world is. It's being an unshockable person. It's actually not being shocked at the mess in people's lives. That you are so rooted in a, another world that you're so missional in this one. In such a way that for you, all of life is ministry. All friendships are participating in what God is doing in people's lives. And it's recognizing that people are a mess. And how do you know that? Because you're a mess. And God is working in your life. So I want to challenge you. Are you a shockable person? You know, when someone does something, does it shock you? When your parents sin, does it shock you? Parents, when your children sin, does it shock you? Someone who's sent and knows that they're sent and they're on a meaningful mission to bring God's love to the world gets it. They're unshockable. They become unshockable. Because they know that God is about messy people. He loves messy people. He actually says he doesn't come for those that aren't a mess. He comes for the sick, not for the healthy. Building redemptive friendships wherever God has sovereignly placed you is being a part of what Jesus is doing. All of you are placed where God has placed you. The Great Commission has this wonderful circumstantial participle that says go. While you're going, do these things. And the going is a circumstantial participle that's telling you God has placed you where you are. That's where you're to go. So you are in a place of relationships, you are in a family, and you are in a town, and you are in a city, and you will have different stages in your life, and along the way, all of it has been meaningfully packed by God as you're going. And you're to be a part of what God is doing in the world, and participating in what he's doing in the world. By being involved in messy people and being involved in messy relationships and being involved in messy friendships and seeking God's redemptive purposes there. All right. Here's another thing. Uh, don't live a super saint life before the world, please. Please stop that. This is a taped. I'm probably going to get hear from it. I don't care about your Christian testimony. I really don't. When you blow it at school and get angry, 
I know some of you, you get angry at school and you start thinking, oh my word, I lost my temper at school and everybody's talking about it. I've lost my witness at school. Or parents, gosh, I'm so selfish and my kids see how selfish I am. What we need is this. What we need is not nice put together folks. What we need is being a part of what Jesus is doing. We need to confess our temper. We need to tell our children, good night, I am selfish. Come alongside them as fellow sinners who need a savior just like they do. Right? Okay. Jesus is praying that we escape the world as a false garden and embrace the world as a place of mission at the same time. All right, what spiritual resources does this passage give us to do this? I want you to look at verses 6 through 11. This is the power. What's the power? We got the prayer, 11b through 19, 6 through 11, we get the power. What's the power? Well, it's ancient magic. Did you see that? I mean, look at verse 6. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. God, God's in the grammar. I love grammar. I am a Greek geek. I love it. Yours they were. Look at the word. You see it? You might want to circle it, underline it. That's called a past and perfect verb. That means continuous action in the past. Continually in the past, you were God's. That's ancient magic. That's ancient grace. Continuously. Whenever God thought of you, whenever Joel came into the mind and heart of God, whenever God thought of Joel, he said, I love him. He's mine. Whenever you came into the mind and heart of God in all of eternity, he loved you. He said, you're mine. You belong to me. Don't miss the ancient logic here. Yours they were, so you gave them to me. We belong to God prior to Jesus' ministry. In other words, Jesus didn't come to get God to love you. He came because God loves you. Yours they were, you gave them to me. Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his punishing death, was not to get God to have favor on you. It proves that he loves you. It's why he came. All right, let's wrap this up. Ancient grace gives you a solid self. It gives you a solid security. It gives you an intact identity. In other words, you have a self that's always loved by God. You have a security that's always loved by God. You have this intact identity that says always loved by God. So you don't have a self that's based on your performance. You don't have a security that's based on your performance. You have an identity that's rooted and grounded in always being loved by God. Yours they were. Ancient magic. Ancient grace. In the heart of God. Right? So who are you? Are you a bad son? Are you someone that has a boyfriend? Are you a great gifted musician? Are you a good people person? 
Are you a fantastic athlete? I saw someone go, yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, you know who you are? You belong to God. You are God's. He has ancient magic on you. Your hope, your identity, your self is that you are always loved and have always been loved and never not loved by God. This is how you escape the world's attraction to be your garden because God's love is the garden. And when ancient magic starts getting a hold of you, you actually can escape the world in a proper way and not seek the world to be your garden. You already have it. And then once you have God's love as your garden, you're now on a mission. (laughs) You can be bold and courageous. And you can start awakening to wherever God has you and the relationships that he's put you in. And you can now start participating in what God is doing in and around wherever you are. And you can start becoming an unshockable person. Because the world is a mess. You're a mess. Your friends are a mess. There's no one who's not. No one. I wasn't going to do this, but I thought about it. You know, I think it's appropriate. Um, When I graduated, I went into campus ministry. And my first assignment was a, a place called Brown University. Isn't that crazy? I went to UMass, and all my friends thought I was going to go to Penn State to do campus ministry. Instead, they sent me to an Ivy League school. And one day, I'm, I uh, did these spiritual interest surveys and questionnaires, and there was this football player that signed it and filled it out, and I, and I went over to talk to him. And uh, through the course of our conversation, we started talking about Jesus and was able to present the gospel to him. And he ends up becoming a Christian. And then years later, he's now an elder in a Presbyterian church in America. And his daughter just came up to me two days ago. Here. Right there. It's Rocky Freeman's daughter. I never, ever, ever would have dreamed of God taking me someplace and having the reality of him bringing someone to himself, him marrying someone and building a gospel family, and then having his daughter here. It's unbelievable. So y'all, we can be strong and courageous because you have an ancient magic that empowers you to be a missional person in this world. You don't need to escape it only, and you don't need to embrace it only. You do both because of ancient magic. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we thank you that you have loved us with an ancient magic, and you do so now. And Jesus, we thank you that you've proven it, and we thank you that you've demonstrated it, and that your life and your death and your resurrection is proof of the wonders of God's love for us. It didn't get God to love us. It's because he already does. 
So, oh Lord, I pray for everyone here. I pray for myself that we would get that. That's so unbelievable that we don't believe it. It's so good that it's hard to grasp. So, oh Lord, press in by the power of your spirit that we are eternally, anciently loved by you. Amen.